Welcome to Laser Focus, a podcast that takes you on the journey of discovery with the leaders that are changing the world with new design and revolutionizing how we think of advanced manufacturing. I'm your host, Rene Youssef, CMO and Brand Disruptor at Velo3D. Today, I'm speaking with Jason Hempton-Taylor, Business Development Manager at Decisive Technologies. Jason brought US robotics company Haddington Dynamics to Australia in 2020 with an innovative market entry strategy via microfactory. Jason believes the microfactory model can be replicated by other robotics and automation companies. Jason, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Renette. It's a pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe dive deeper into your career? I suppose I've had one of those sort of diverse careers. I have to say, I've listened to a few of your podcasts and guys who got PhDs and all this really impressive stuff. And I'm one of those people that hasn't got any of that. I, I actually dropped out of, of university in Perth, Western Australia, studying graphic design. And then I ended up in London where I eventually did pick up computers <laughs> and worked for a, a company that was selling Macintosh equipment to advertising agencies. And that's the funny thing. Sometimes where you start, you don't know where you're going to end up. That's so true. Um, so at the time, yeah, I was basically selling computer equipment and printers to advertising agencies to manage their color for their presses and all that sort of stuff. And I learned enough around color calibration. So I just spent about 12 years over there. It came time that I just wanted to go home. And the color management skills I learned, I decided to use those to go back to what I really love, which was art. And I ended up opening an art gallery in a place called Byron Bay. I didn't set out to open a, bar, a gallery, but I, I ended up opening a, a little specialist printing company called Mother Art and specialized in doing printing on canvas. It was an interesting time in my life, but sometimes things don't work out and it was a beautiful failure in the end. Just before 2008, things got a bit tougher and that was the global financial crisis. And so, yeah, I ended up just ended up going back, going to Sydney for a while. And on the journey that I'm presently found myself now of going back into sort of computers and printers. And then there was about 10 years ago, I discovered 3D printers, became fascinated after a few years. I started getting ideas around how 3D printers could work more efficiently. The common sort of criticism of those 3D printers in the early days was they're too slow. The more 3D printers you get, you could actually start to look beyond just using the 3D printers for prototypes. That was really the early days was all about 3D printers a prototype. And so the idea of getting multiple 3D printers, not just two, four, but 10, 20 3D printers we started calling them print farms. So Jason, that, that leads me to the question, right? So I hear and understand that you went to the US to learn more about print farms. Is that because you realized that print farms could be the future of production? And what did you learn about your findings when you went to the US? But I absolutely understood the possibility of using 3D print farms as a sort of mean to production, especially with new products and new product development. So for example, they were building a prototype robot that had about 200 or so parts. And of that, about 150 of the parts were 3D printed using high-strength nylons. Normally, 
if you were going to produce something like that, you would use plastic injection molding and traditional systems. The challenge with that is once you go down that route of plastic injection molding, you have to create molds, you have to create the tools, and each tool for every plastic part can cost you up to $10,000, $20,000. And then once you've got that tool, it's hard to justify making another one. And also, if you go down the plastic injection molding, you need a minimum MOQ, minimum order quantity of a thousand parts. So the idea of committing to that makes a huge commitment to build a product like a robot with 150 parts. If you're using 3D printers, for example, in a, in a 3D print farm, those 150 parts with 20 3D printers, we can produce a robot at least two or three a week. And that came to the idea of we not mass production, but somewhere below mass production, smaller volume. And we were calling them micro factories. And so the micro factory idea grew from the idea of a print farm. The 3D print farm sort of the engine where, you know, you save by not having to engage an external supply chain, not having to rely on other parts, not having to warehouse big itineraries of parts, you're able to print on demand. But mo more important, in that early stage of development of a product, like a, a robot, for example, you are reiterating, you're making changes, but it's not until you build that MVP that you do really need to change sometimes. You realize that housing or that differential on the robot, you need another few teeth and differential or whatever. You got the ability to then say, okay, Part number four, five, six, just, let's just change that. And you can concentrate on that. And their existing strategy was selling kits, robot kits, largely to makerspaces and universities and all that. And the idea was they would 3D print in the 3D print farm, including 150 odd parts that they 3D printed, the servos, an FPGA controller, which was pretty unique, belt driven robot. And people would then, you know, buy that robot for, I think it was $6,000 and, and learn to assemble it. But we were getting patchy results and it, was, it became a very difficult challenge to, to actually raise funds by selling all those individual kits. So I came back and worked in Vegas for a little while and, and it became a real challenge. We'd run out of money. As startups do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we were in a little workshop right under the flight path in front of Las Vegas airport. We came up with a strategy. And the strategy was to sell the robots in, in more of a corporate arena and not sell them as kits and not to sell them for $5,000 or $6,000, to sell them for $15,000. For $250,000, you could set up a micro factory. And the first one was with Decisive Technologies in Toowoomba, Queensland. The idea of the micro factory is that you mirror the production of one unit, which was Las Vegas, and mirror exactly the processes, another thing. And obviously now with cloud computing, with the ability to have the same sort of 3D printing scenario set up and each of the build plates was identical, we'd know exactly what the parts were. We'd have obviously the, the FPGA controllers and all those things mirrored and with specific training. So they flew over to Las Vegas, did some training and then just before COVID, a couple of the guys in Vegas flew to Toowoomba <laughs> and set up the whole routine and then pressed play. And that was the first one. We started making robots in Australia. 
um, the exact same mirror that what we were doing in, in Las Vegas. And, and it turned out well. We ended up um, creating another microfactory in Irvine, California, another one in Reno, another one in Mexico. And we were looking at somebody in France and a couple of other things. It was We started to get some, some momentum around this whole idea of microfactories. So you've talked about microfactories a lot, right? So maybe can we talk about the benefits and the importance of it being an entry point for Australia too, like in the importance of manufacturing in Australia? The benefits of microfactories are that rather than concentrating on a product or having a, a macro factory, it tends to be a big infrastructure. And when you go big, you, you do need to have an economy of scale to, to go big. The difference is when you have micro factories, you can have actually distributed manufacturing in a number of different places. But it doubles up as not just a manufacturing facility, but also as a service center. For example, you were building the robot, you have a local service agent that's not just able to service the equipment, but they built it. So they can actually really be the experts in any form of not just the service, but installation. The 3D printing becomes key to that as well, because the bigger challenge of having a factory production is having big warehouses full of parts. <laughs> and when you've got 3D printers, you don't necessarily need to do that. You figure out how many parts do we need per month? Mm. Now, we don't need a thousand parts, but we need 50 of those parts per month. We need 30 of those parts per month. And then you can structure the 3D print farm to produce that. You're saving a lot of money there. So you can have a smaller footprint on that micro factory. And you can have a dedicated team just looking after the 3D printers, which mostly look after themselves. The micro factory is a service center, distributed manufacturing. It also gives you the ability to set them up anywhere. So Jason, Australians are well known to be early adopters of technology. Do you see that Australians are adopting additive manufacturing and robotics faster than other places in the world? I'm part of most of the groups over here. We've got Robotics Australia Group. We've got some facilities that are specializing in promoting robots with the government. But there's been a challenge around that for many years. Australians, we've got some great universities. We've got some great institutions. But for many years, we've had the brain drain. People like yourself and me tend to Say, I've learned what I learned and I'm going to go to America to do it because I can't do it here. Certainly being that sort of fatalistic sort of approach to, oh, okay, we can only do so much here. We actually invented Wi-Fi. Yeah, we invented the algorithm. We invented a, a few key sort of strategies. I think Google Maps was originally done here. The iRobot, the guy who designed that, was from Adelaide, I think. We have some, some clever stuff here and it's tended to travel the world. But I, I think we've had some change of government. We've had a, some big changes after COVID <laughs> where people come back to Australia. There's a real motivation to, to build manufacturing in Australia. I think also like these micro factories and print farms are helping products get to market faster, right? That you're doing a lot of iteration. You are doing things across the globe if you have these multiple product farms. And so I think getting products, especially if they're competitive to markets fast, is probably a really good benefit of these uh, initiatives. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because as we learned after COVID, a sea container went from being like $5,000 for a sea container to $20,000. So the idea of exporting and importing and people having to wait six months to get their product is not a great thing. 
So certainly if you've got those micro factories in a distributed way, you can really cut down those lead times. What we discovered was the relative humidity here affected the 3D printers slightly differently to the dry conditions in Vegas. So we're also getting those regional differences figured out as well. So there's lots of different advantages and certainly you, you need phone support as well. So we were, we had a big client in Singapore and clearly phone support from America was still a challenge because Singapore is pretty much on the same timeline as Australia. So we were able to use the guys here to do that phone support um, for, for that region. And that sort of can work. Certainly Australia can be that area where we can support this region a lot more. And traditionally, a lot of companies have come to Southeast Asia and set up a head office in Singapore. Singapore is a fantastic place, but it, it's tiny. <laughs> the whole thing would fit inside Brisbane, I think. That's the last thing we have is, is space constraints in Australia. We can build big factories here. And more recently, there's been a $15 billion initiative launched by the, the government, the federal government here, to, to encourage you know, new factories, new places, and all that sort of stuff. And I've certainly having some conversations to bring up this idea of the micro factory because I've lived and breathed it. And I'm still working, well, again, working with the team that we actually set that micro factory up. So. It's certainly a, something that, you know, not just for Australia, but for the world that we can actually embrace and do something with, hopefully. So what kind of lessons would you say are important for people building micro factories or print farms that you've learned in your travels that they should keep in mind? Yeah, I mean, I think documentation is pretty key, the processes. So when you're in one factory, obviously, you've got like a, that central point of truth on that production line. When you distribute that manufacturing, obviously it's that's fractured. But when we were producing a, an item, a robot, which is an absolute precision instrument, you know, it has to be a nanometer accurate in certain parts. And so there was some key manufacturing processes that we had to mimic. We actually had benches with jigs and fixtures set up and we figured that all out in Las Vegas and we had to absolutely mirror the actual workspace itself to, to what we were doing in the original place. So if you were setting up a series of micro factories, you have your sort of your master and then your sort of your daughter <laughs> factories. So the master factory is where you establish those processes, those routines, those setups, how the benches are positioned how the jigs and fixtures are all set up eventually identically to them, to, to the daughter factory. I want to touch on something we started the conversation around, like being an entrepreneur and failures and rises. And I've been in like Silicon Valley for like 11 years and I've seen the ups and downs, right? But something we don't really talk about is like mental health. And I can imagine that was pretty tough, like going through some early stage startups, failures, starting again, sleeping in your car. Is there anything that we can talk about on like how you got through that and anything that for people going through this now, like that they should be aware of and how to think about getting through tough times? I had some challenges. I've had a couple of startups and a couple of things. Failure can be a mental health challenge and also success. 100%. It happened in the middle of COVID. So that was a collective challenge. I've got friends who were like, oh, great, I was going to stay at home. But for me, I felt like my wings were clipped. I was... I went from traveling around and spending a lot of time in America, which I love, in Queensland. 
the rest of the team were in, in Vegas and they all isolated together and rented a house and were living together in one place. And as we got the money, we were also, suddenly London became a big thing. And of course they were going to choose the ideal time for themselves, which meant that I was the odd man out in Brisbane. So I spent probably the first couple of months working from like 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. And what also became apparent is the company that bought us were not interested in my stuff. But my microfactory strategy, which I got a bit precious around, was not part of their strategy, you know? And when you're with a, a startup, you know, your strategies can change day and night. But when you're suddenly a part of a company with 20,000 employees, their strategy is baked in. <laughs> they don't necessarily want some bloke in Queensland telling them, well, oh, let's do this. So that became a real challenge. I was working at stupid hours, vampire hours in the morning, stuck in COVID and we were locked down here in Australia. I started drinking a little bit too much, day drinking as we were doing and not sleeping enough. And I eventually came not that long ago, my drinking caught up with me. I had a heart failure. <laughs> You know, and that was a real realization. I'm in my fifties and yeah, that bad lifestyle caught up with me. Luckily, I've got the support of a lot of people and that, that's what's really key is I've got some good alliances and some good friends and family. I'm glad that you're bouncing back and getting better. So Jason, what's different about engineering, the engineering space and the way that mental health can be affected and is it spoken about enough? I think that's really important. I mean, I'm, I'm not an engineer, although I've, I've been hanging out with engineers for a long time, and I suppose I am in a way involved in the engineering space. And what the challenges are, and I've seen this a lot, is that people can be working crazy hours, putting all hours, not getting enough sleep and simple things or exercise. And people who are amazing at something tend to be obsessives. Unfortunately, obsessiveness can lead to mental health issues. And, and so I think you've got to, got to realize that. But you don't want to let it get to that stage like, like I did. It's dangerous. And so you, you need to sort of have a real good stock and take a stock of what's important in your life, your environment, uh, your friends, um, your family, all those sort of things. Sometimes you can take that for granted that they're just going to be there. But if you don't put work into those relationships, and, and you're just concentrating obsessively on a project like it, everything in the world relies on it, then yeah, you can have a challenge. And, and also, yeah, failure, failures can trigger emotional responses. I also feel like we could talk for hours about these topics like micro factories and mental health, but I do want to thank you for your time on the show. And one final question, where can our listeners learn more about you and your work at Decisive Technologies? We got a website. So decisive spent uh, spelt unusually. So yes. D D I S I V. It's D C I S I V dot com dot AU. The Aussie thing. And so you can find me on LinkedIn, Jason Hampton Taylor. I've got a lot of followers on LinkedIn and all that sort of stuff. Thank you, Renette. Sometimes when you start, you don't know where you're going to end up. Jason said this during our chat, and it's really stayed with me. Jason himself went from a career in graphic design to 3D printing to traveling the world building microfactories. 
Something else I took away from the talk with Jason was the concept of not attaching yourself too closely to your ideas. In an ever-evolving industry like additive manufacturing, where iteration is such a vital part of the process, setback and obstacles really can serve to teach us important lessons. And hearing Jason's story, it's very clear he has developed the strength to push forward and carve out a future, not only for himself, but for the people and companies he'll be able to help with these emerging technologies. The manufacturing industry in Australia is not without its challenges, and it seems like micro factories could help drive change and enable Australia to start a journey back towards a thriving manufacturing industry. Thank you for listening to Laser Focused. You can find new episodes every two weeks on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and leave a review to help more listeners find us. I'm Renette Youssef, and this has been Laser Focused, brought to you by Velo3D, where together we innovate without compromise. 